Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. The guest today is Julian Davies, the principal investigator at the Davies Lab at the University of British Columbia, which is just the most recent stop in Julian's long career in research. But in industry circles, he might be best known for being the director of research at Biogen's Geneva Lab in the early 1980s. We recorded this podcast at Julian's office on the UBC campus, and we discussed those early years at Biogen. We discussed growing up in Wales and England during World War II, and we discussed the founding of Terrigen, which is a company that he helped spin out of UBC. Yeah, so all that and more, here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Julian Davies. Your, your education. Well, first off, how long have you been at uh, UBC? I've been here since... Uh, um, so I've, I've been here now, what, 22 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's... It's probably it's probably the longest place I've ever been in. <laughs> for once, for, for one once, spot. I know. Yes. I was looking at your background. Okay, yeah. well let's let's start with. Um, so I know you got your PhD in Nottingham. That's right. Yeah. But did you grow up around there as well? No, no. I, I'm Welsh. I was born in South Wales, and um, I. Well, my family had a pretty mixed up. Uh, housing arrangement during the war because my father was a. A dockyard worker, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother was a uh, Red Cross nurse, and we were living in Kent first, uh-huh. and so they they kept on moving the children around because they thought the children were going to be bombed, and moving them around where you mean from in in uh, away from where they thought the next where there might was. be sites for bombing. I see. And the funniest thing was, well, it's funny now, but. Um, just shortly after the war started, my sister and I were moved um, to a rather pastoral part of Kent, where it was thought that Germans wouldn't want to bomb. Mm. Um, what it, it, it's, it's impossible to imagine how this happened, but it turned out that it was right next to the major fighter base in, in southern Britain. Um, and so they realized they made a mistake, so we went back home. And then we went back to Wales. I was born in... We, uh, my first six years were spent in Wales. Uh-huh. My father and my mother were born in Neath. And then um, we were... So we, my sister and I were evacuated down to Wales, places we'd never been to. And we were away for almost three years. And then came back to uh, Kent for a little while. And then... My aunt, who lived in Wales, became ill, my father's sister, and so we all moved back down there. And so we went, by the time we got down to, back to Wales, I just started my first year in high school, or grammar school, and uh, so all my sort of secondary education was took place in Wales. But when you said they were, they were moving you around... Um, just the children, or was just your family with Oh, just the children. So where were you staying? They were putting you up in... Put us up in, in you know, whoever would take us. I mean, uh-huh. it, was, it, was a st- it was a strange situation, because if they would take a train, they would be usually going classes um, to one place, 
in the hope of keeping the kids interested. But we'd go to, uh, we'd let off, be let off at the same the train station. And then it, it was like um, you were being bought as a slave because people would come and say, I'll take that one for... Or I'll, ho- I'll host this child. Yeah, or, yeah. And, and they, they kept you and your sister together? No. Oh, no. We were, di- we were in different towns. Ah, yeah. oh, that's awful hard. It, it was, but I mean, but it was hard for my parents. It was hard for my sister. I, but I was young enough that it, you know, Seemed. didn't really matter. Huh. And it, and then when we went down to Wales the second time, um, my sister and I were in the valleys, but I was in one valley and she was in the other valley. And to get to see each other was about a three-hour bus ride. So we didn't see each other very often. So for like a year or so, at least. Well, for we, I when we were down in when I was evacuated the second time, I think I saw my sister three times in three years. Yeah. Huh. So okay, so you had a fractured. fractured no, no, and it there. was, um, and but I don't know whether that was something that made a big difference to me or anything like this, but I, I, adapted easily going to different places and. Um, uh, I didn't mind moving. Whether I or not, I thought it was exciting at that time. I don't know, huh. but uh, I I did pretty well in school. Well, let me ask you. But it it would I would think that um, with all this moving around, it would be difficult to to focus on your studies with all this happening. Your family, nothing with your family, right. the threat of war. Uh, yes, that wasn't a problem. Um, but you know, I I can't remember. I mean, when you're in in uh, grade school, you know, you don't think about studies, do you? I mean, you just go to school. But you're supposed to go to yeah. school. Uh, I learned to read and write, although I must say that um, one thing I remember very, very clearly, when my father came to visit us when, when I was evacuated, and he was very disturbed by my handwriting. He was, he was very keen on handwriting. He used to write beautiful text uh-huh. and so he arranged for somebody in the village to try to develop my handwriting better and so I went and practiced with these people and things like this and that and was good how is it today did it work it's still good it's, it's still it's good. good I I I write by hand better than I do by down the computer uh, so your dad was onto something yeah oh yeah um, and um, you know that was one of the things that were most was most important to him, to have good handwriting. That that was a, I said that was a sign of character. Huh. <laughs> okay, so then when you're back to Wales, the last time you started high school there. Yeah, I started high school. Well, I'm, it was my second year of high, year of high school there, and um, it was it was the longest time, and I stayed there for well, let me see four years before I took exams to go to university mm-hmm. and um, that was the longest time that my, I lived at home and it was the same for my sister as well. And, and when you were in high school, mm-hmm. um, did you realize that you had an aptitude for science or you know, you had at least an interest? Uh, I had, it, when I went to school, high school, I realized that I loved chemistry and I wanted to do chemistry. And I, I was, I was extremely fortunate in that um, uh, they had they appointed two students who cleaned out the chemistry lab every Saturday uh-huh. and sort of set things up. And a friend of mine and myself, we were appointed the, the stewards of the lab. I wish we loved it. We used to do experiments ourselves, of course. On Saturday mornings, we'd go in to clear out. And there'd be no one in there, but there's the nobody but us. And so we did all kinds of experiments. And um, we, there certainly was one case where uh, we could have been badly hurt. We were mixing something and it exploded. And <laughs> my friend who had, he was a big guy and he had very thick glasses. And his glasses got coated with stuff which blew out of a mortar. And, and I, it was, I was, I was a bit further away. I didn't get any of it. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't hurt. I mean, he could have lost his sight. Yeah. He didn't have his glasses on. So that was, you know, I learned my chemistry then, and I, 
I really like it. And my the headmaster of the school, he wanted me to go to Oxford to do chemistry, and I was totally opposed to that. Why? Because I hated languages, and uh, I had an awful time learning French. And uh, to go to Oxford in those days, you had to have Latin. And Cambridge as well. You had to have had a course in Latin. And there was no way I was going to take a course in Latin. And I won a scholarship, which was called a state scholarship. And a state, with a state scholarship, a university had to accept you if you decided to go. Um, that was where the fight over Oxford <laughs> or Cambridge became. And I said, no, I wouldn't go, even though I know, knew that I could get in. Mm -hmm. And... A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, had gone to Nottingham, and he said it was a great place. So I went to Nottingham, and it was a very good choice. It was a smaller university. Nottingham used to be a university college of London. And uh, I went there, and uh, uh, it was, you know, it, it, it's a really a strange experience to go off Again, um, my parent. I would, I would get to see my parents occasionally, but uh, no, it was travel was hard in those days, and we didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. Most people didn't have cars, um, so if you wanted to go anywhere, you had you went by uh, train, train, yeah, or bus. Uh, I bought myself a motorbike as soon as I got to university. Well, of course, you did. Which <laughs> I loved, but uh, then I crashed it, and I had an accident. So <laughs> I didn't. How? Wait. What? How soon after you bought it did you crash it? Oh, a year afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. That's usually, yeah. it seems like that's how it happens. And not only did I crash my bike, but I crashed the bike of my friend. So, so you had two two wrecks? Well, One on your more, bike and one yeah, on your friend's bike? Right, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did you have a helmet on? Of course not. No, you didn't have helmets back then? No, I mean, the great, thing, the great thing in those days was if you had a motorbike, you had to have a, um, a Royal Air Force flying suit. Mm -hmm. And you could buy these things uh, because they were you know, surplus goods. Sure. You could go to a surplus goods store and buy these great jackets, which which covered you completely, and they zipped up all yep. over the place. And you were pretty well protected in those things. <laughs> Except for your head. No helmet. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned that some some people's parents were um, having their kids, you know, work or something at sixteen. Yeah. So you, your family was uh, behind you going to university. Yes, my. My father, in particular, was very, very. He, I, he wasn't pushy, but he wanted me to have a good education. He wanted me to go to university. Why? Why do you think that was? Um, I think it was because he never had the opportunity. He was a merchant seaman, and uh, then a ship's carpenter, and he he really valued education, and my father encouraged me all the time. He was disappointed that I didn't want to go to Oxford, <laughs> but um, you know he was very happy when I went to Nottingham, and I, I did pretty well at Nottingham, and uh, and you stayed, for so, right into you rolled right into your PhD program there. Well, yeah. See, so I got my bachelor's degree after three years, uh -huh. and I decided that was in 1953, and I decided I really I, I was doing chemistry. And I felt I really do want to get a PhD. So I, one of the professors, one of the faculty members, had a lab, and he offered me a place to do a PhD. So you know, it was it was easy. I just took it. But you you wanted to do the PhD because you knew you wanted to do research, or you just yes. thought the more education. And I the wanted better. to do chemistry. It, it was okay. to do. I was doing chemistry, and I loved chemistry. That was the thing that I enjoyed most. I, I had no idea about career uh -huh. or anything like that. I just wanted to do chemistry. So I went off and did. Uh, so I got my PhD, and uh, I still wanted to do chemistry. And um, my, uh, I, my professor said, you know, why don't you go to the U.S.? And this had never occurred to me. So um, he wrote a letter for me to um, uh, somebody at Columbia University uh, who said he would take me. I was, that was 
Cool. Okay. And uh, it was, you know, if you wore a clean shirt to work, you'd go home at night and there was a black um, soot. The thing of soot on your. And if you left it, <laughs> there were fogs. You'd like then you put your your notebook on the, on the desk, and if there was a fog, and there were black spots all over the notebook. But anyway. Um, but so Dottie didn't mind leaving the U.S. She didn't mind leaving, and we were very fortunate because we lived in. A, um, we managed to find a house in a small village, uh, about twenty minutes by train to Manchester. The problem was that the the faculty of chemistry at um, Manchester were all focused on different kinds of experiments. I was interested in natural products, and I'd done worked on the synthesis of natural products in at Columbia and also Wisconsin, and that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. And uh, nobody was doing that at uh, the university. Um, I started trying to teach some students something about biochemistry, even though I didn't know any biochemistry. And then I had a great piece of luck. I went to, um, happened to be invited to a party by an Australian friend and um, we were talking together and I said you know I'm really not enjoying chemistry here and he said well come down to my lab and see what I do and he was doing microbiology mm. and I'd never done microbiology but he was centrifuging bacteria and things it seemed so exciting and I thought gee this is fun and he said well you know if you if you've got time, come down and we can do some experiments together. So uh, his name was Milton Salton, and he was a very, very well-known um, microbiologist. And uh, so I went down whenever I could. And I had to teach at Manchester in, in the chemistry department, but I, when I, ever I could, I could go to his place. and then. After a while, and so while you're there, you're sort of learning microbiology. I was learning microbiology from him. Uh -huh. He was telling me things about microbiology, so it was all practical. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen bacteria before, but he was he was working on bacterial cell walls, and so we were purifying cell walls. And he was telling me what was going on, and it was it was very for me. It was it was completely novel, and it was exciting, and I enjoyed it. And I. After a couple of years um, in Manchester, I thought chemistry is not for me any longer. Milton Salton, he, he had decided to leave Manchester to go back to Sydney. And uh, I said, well, I want to leave too. So he arranged for me to go to Harvard Medical School. He had a very good friend there in the bacteriology department and he wrote to this uh, Bernie Davis it was Davis not with an E and he uh, suggested that I go there and Bernie Davis offered me a fellowship uh, straight off and so I resigned from Manchester uh, um, and went to Harvard Medical School I'm sure your wife liked that, right? Back to Massachusetts. She, well, she was very happy to go to Boston because yep. that's where she came from. Uh -huh. yeah. And you had one child or two at this point? Well, by that time, we had two. And then when, um, let's see, in Boston, we had a second child, a third child. Well, yeah. Okay. So, so you're, you're at Harvard. But I went to Harvard Medical School and to work with Bernie Davis. And I didn't know any biochemistry at all. I didn't know any microbiology at all. And looking back on it, it was funny. But the first day I went into Harvard Medical School, into the lab, there was a seminar. And the speaker was um, Salvador Luria, uh -huh. who was a very, very famous uh, microbiologist, an Italian. And he worked with bacteriophage. I didn't know what a bacteriophage was, but I went to his seminar, and the combination of his poor English and the talk and the material, I didn't understand one word. <laughs> I spent an hour in there not knowing what anybody was talking about, and 
I've never been, I never felt so isolated. So Bernie Davis gave me the job of, he, he told me that um, he worked on the mode of action of streptomycin, an antibiotic, mm -hmm. and he, um, he believed that streptomycin affected cell membranes in bacteria, and that's how it killed bacteria. And there was somebody in Hungary or somewhere who had published a paper saying that streptomycin inhibited protein synthesis. Bernie was taking me, you know, as a, you know, somebody could do anything, who should, should give him something, get him, get rid of him or something. Uh, so he said, this, um, this person has shown this, I want you to disprove it. So I started doing experiments. But the real thing was I made friends in Jim Watson's lab mm -hmm. and in Wally Gilbert's lab. And they taught me all kinds of things. So I was able to, and that was also the time when um, the genetic code was being worked out. Right. And the way it was worked out at first, was people would make polynucleotides and throw them into a bacterial extract, uh -huh. and then ask, um, would this polynucleotide code for a polypeptide um, that corresponded to the bases in the polynucleotide, or was it, would it do something different? And so, for, so for example, polyuridylic acid, which is a stretch of use, encoded something which was polyphenylalanine, so that you knew that the code for phenylalanine was UUU. Yeah. And that just came out at that time. And uh, people in Jim Watson's lab were working on this, and in Wally Gilbert's lab were working on this, and using these tools. Fortunately, I was able to use these tools and look at streptomycin. And it was obvious that streptomycin inhibited protein synthesis. <laughs> but, Wally, uh, but Bernie Davis wouldn't believe my experiments. He just didn't think... I mean, what, he just kept telling you to run them again? Well, he would tell me to run them again, but he said it, it's an artifact. So I, um, I one, one day I was over at, um, at Harvard Medical School, over at the Harvard Biolabs, and, and I was talking with Jim Watson, who is, I mean, he's always been considered somewhat of a strange man, but he was always very nice to me. Uh -huh. And he asked me what I was doing. And I told him when I was isolating mutants, of bacteria resistant to antibiotics, and I was testing them with, in protein synthesis systems, and he says, oh, that's interesting. Why don't you come and give a talk to my lab? So I was invited to Jim's uh, lab talk, which usually took place in the evening, I can't remember what evening of the week it was. Um, Jim would come, and Jim's style was to always come in late and sit in the front row uh -huh. and take his shoes off and stick there with his socks and read the New York Times. That was, he usually would like to read the paper in a seminar. Polite. But, yeah, but he listened to people. He always was listening. So I talked to Jim about this. I thought, gave my talk. Jim said, um, Said, that's really neat stuff. You should publish it. I, I said, I can't. And so Jim said, why not? I said, well, Bernie Davis doesn't believe it. So Jim said, i tell you what, just keep on going and I'll see what I can do. So about... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Two weeks later, Bernie Davis called me into his office and said, um... You know, I've decided that you can publish your work. And he said that Jim Watson is going to submit it to the proceedings. Well, that was that was heaven. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the proceedings. So I said he didn't. But he said I still don't believe it. <laughs> Bernie was paying me a good fellowship, um, but uh, Francois Jacob from Paris um, came to Harvard to give some talks. And I mean, Jacob is, was a very famous man. I went to his first talk, and then Bernie said, "Well, I'm giving a dinner tonight for, for Jacob, yeah. and um, would you and your wife like to come?" And of course, we were. So we had a nice dinner with them, and uh, then Bernie said, "Could I take Jacob?" I had a car, beat up old car. They said, "Can you take?" Uh, Mr. Jacob back to his hotel. So I, I said yes. And uh, then on the way back, we were chatting, and then Jacob said, Would you like to come and work in Paris? And I just, you know, how can this happen to me? Yeah. And uh, Dottie and I talked about it, and we thought you know, we hadn't been in Boston that long, but Paris sounded good. Right, yeah. And we. Uh, uh, so she said, Let, let's go. And then I, when I went back to, into Bernie's lab, I said, you know, I'd offered, been offered by Jacques a chance to go to Jacob. And uh, Bernie said, well, you know, you can take your... Fe- I had a fellowship, an NIH um, advanced fellowship or something like this, uh, of career development. And Bernie said... Um, you can you can take it with you to Paris, <laughs> so that was it. I, huh. I could go on and sell it, and I'm I'm not an Ameri- I was not an American citizen or anything like this, but they allowed me to NIH allowed me to. That's great. Use the money to go there, so. So to, first off, your wife seems quite game. She'll. She's oh yeah. No, she's been, you need to. she's been very positive. I mean, uh, I couldn't have done anything without Dottie. Huh. I mean, she's. Um, supported me all the time and then um, you know Paris obviously that's French speaking and, and I know you don't like the languages so you weren't worried about that at all well I was because my French was just so bad uh-huh. but uh, I you know I was su- submersed in it and um, people people were very good I mean I ended up picking it up I'll, I'll come back to that later yeah, okay. I ended up talking passable French it was a wonderful period in my life and, and I was very lucky there. The moment I arrived, um, Jacob Monod and Revolve were, were given the Nobel Prize. So the first month I was at the Institut Pasteur, there was nothing but parties and celebrating <laughs> the French Nobel Prize. And, and it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, you thought this was going to be great for yeah. the next <laughs> few years. Let's see, I was I'd meant to go there for one year, but I stayed two years. Um, so you're two years in Paris at this point. Yeah, and then went back to Harvard. Well, actually, before I went back to Harvard, I had an offer of a position for a tenure position at the University of Wisconsin, it just out of the blue. I mean, things were done in those, like yeah, I in those I guess days. Yeah, so. so I'm sorry, you left Paris back to Harvard for a couple of back months, Harvard, and then the position and came then from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. Then went straight to Wisconsin. <coughs> So we, there was plenty of moving involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, 67. And I was very lucky because 
When I was in Paris with François Jacob, there was a Japanese um, professor. Um, his name was Hirota. And he brought, a, a, I don't know if you know this, but the first antibiotic resistance strains, that the, mul the first multi-drug resistance strains were discovered in Japan. I did not know that. And, um, and that, that, was, that was in the, uh, probably in the, it, I think it was first in the late 50s. And nobody in, the, in uh, North America, nobody believed it. You know, how could you get multi-drug resistance at one time? Anyway, Hirota gave me a strain that he had brought from Japan to Paris. And I took it with me to Wisconsin. And I started working on it. And um, it was that time that I learned that streptomycin um, is inactivated. The, the bacterial strain has a way of inactivating them, of, of sort of just making the drug completely ineffective. And that was really intriguing. So I started working on that. So that and that became, you know, one of the major things I wanted to work on for a while, mm -hmm. and that all happened at the beginning in Wisconsin. It was, it was about 19, 1979 or, or early 1980. Uh, I got tired of Madison, <coughs> and uh, I think it was partly I looked around at the the other faculty members, and most of them were um, were full professors. Madison was very full professor heavy. Mm -hmm. There were very few um, assistant professors or associate professors. They were all a bunch of old guys who'd been in Wisconsin for a long time yeah. and were going to stay there. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, it would be maybe interesting to do something else. And I had started doing cloning experiments and developing vectors for recombinant DNA work. And then um, I saw this ad in Nature for Biogen, and it just said, it didn't say very much at all, but I just wrote and said, you know, I'd like some more information. And about a week later, to my great surprise, I had a phone call from Wally Gilbert. And, you know, I worked with him. Sure. So Harvard. he knew your work. We knew him well. Yeah. We knew each other. And he said, uh, I can remember, he asked me, well, how are things going? And I said, well, it's freezing here. Because <laughs> it was, uh, you know, end of, end of the year. And I said, I've just graded an exam for 400 students. And he said, ah, he said, I can save you from that. And I said, what do you mean? But he said, um, I'm one of a group that started a biotech company. And uh, we're interested in cloning and expressing human proteins and developing them as drugs. And... Uh, well, that sounds interesting. Well, he said, why don't you come out and have a look at this? And they were in Geneva. But that's curious to me. I, I thought, um, I mean, Biden was founded in, in, in Massachusetts, yeah? In Cambridge, no. I thought. Oh, it was founded in Geneva. No, it was founded in Geneva. The first, the first labs were in Geneva because the two of the main people in, uh, well, the, on the scientific advisory board of Biogen, there was... Um, there was one man from Geneva, there was one man from Zurich, there were uh, one, two, three Germans, mm -hmm. and who and they were the, the main part of the scientific advisory board, and Ken Murray, who was English. Um, and Wally was really the only American who was involved in them at that time. But I, it was, I think it was Wally and Charlie Weissman who really got it started. And uh, they had rented space in uh, uh, a very nice building in Geneva, which was uh, some kind of uh, national lab or something like this, but they, it was largely empty. 
so they rented space there. Mm -hmm. And so I was flown, Dottie and I flew out to Geneva. Um, they offered me the job. And so I didn't, I didn't say yes immediately, but we went back home. We had to take care of, do something with our children. And my daughter had left home anyway. She'd gone off to protest somewhere. Oh, boy. And um, See what Masvin did to her? <laughs> my, my middle son never wanted to leave Madison. And our youngest son said, yeah, he'd come with us. He wanted to. But so how old were the children now at this point? Well, the oldest being? at that time, the youngest son at that time was 16. Okay. So they would be 16, 18, and 20 odd. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we sold our house and moved to um, Geneva. It was interesting because one of the people, Phil Sharp, was um, at MIT. He was one of the board of uh, Biogen. And he had already hired somebody from Wisconsin to go and work there as a scientist. It was somebody from our department who I knew. Huh. And um, uh, well, when I got there, there were 12 people working at Biogen. And it was, you know, that was another great thing. I mean, we were starting from scratch. And I had to build up the lab to do what was necessary. Uh, so, but I mean, two things about this. One, I read someplace, I was doing research, <laughs> that you flew over, you flew with, you flew ice cream from Wisconsin to Geneva because you there wasn't going to be good ice cream there. <laughs> so you, you packed it, um, you got it down to some ridiculously low temperature yeah. and flew, <laughs> flew it over? No, no, that, that was it. I, but I tell you what happened was that um, when the agreement... See, I still had some students in Madison. Uh -huh. I had um, some graduate students who were finishing up. I had two, actually. And um, one, of the, one of them eventually came and worked at Biogen for a while. But uh, I had to fly back. And I would usually go for three or four days to Madison, you know, take care of all my affairs there, and then fly back to Geneva. And it just occurred to me that you know, Swiss think ice cream is good, but I said Wisconsin ice cream is better. So mm -hmm. it is true. I would um, go to the ice cream store. Wisconsin makes very good ice cream. Yeah, the dairy. It's a big ice cream store. I'd buy a big tub of ice cream, and I, I, I would freeze it at minus 80. <laughs> and then, and I could just take it. And now, I mean, there were no limitations like there are now, are now about taking liquids on planes. Right. And things like that. But I could just stick it in a, a big bag and take it on the plane. You mean check it? No, I carry it on. Yeah, you put it overhead. And I would um, take it to Geneva. And as soon as I got there, we'd eat the ice cream. Could be, it'd be back to yeah, yeah. normal back ice cream. Back to normal temperature. Yeah. That's a good story. So I was the other thing that I noticed. That, um, it seemed like the early days there. You know, Biogen was run sort of like a lab. I mean, you had different heads, yeah. um, all sort of working on their own thing, and then you would sort of all talk to each other. Um, and it sounded a lot like you, your academic life was almost just extended into this. this it setting was very much an extended university. Um, the there was one difficulty about Biogen, and I think that that was realized, you know, a while after. The Biogen had a scientific advisory board mm -hmm. that were really good scientists. And Charles Weissman, Bernard Mack, uh, Heinz Schaller, um, a variety of people like that. And they all had started projects in their own labs for Biogen, like cloning hepatitis, cloning interferon. Mm -hmm. Alpha cloning interferon beta, um, working on a separation method for um, interference, and they had these projects sort of in their lab, but they were being they were being done in Geneva in the Geneva lab, and the problem was that they felt the projects were theirs. And I was just supposed to supervise, but not to try to run them. And uh, 
with some of the people it was uh, with Ken Murray things worked very well but Charlie Weissman Bernard Mack and Heinz Schaller and Hofschneider they wanted to make sure that they ran the projects they didn't think I was supposed to run the projects so the scientific advisory board um, I can't say they interfered a lot because the projects some of the projects worked very very well but they were an interference mm -hmm. and I was not free to do things or change things when they had decided this was something that had to be done but there are other projects where I had much more freedom with so I was the research director there but the board some of the board members had their own projects there it took me a while to realize you know how difficult that was going to be and at one time I would have said Biogen and Genentech were really you know head to head but Genentech they didn't they just had a complete California freedom in their in their situation so that I think there was I would have said there was a very strong um, not only European but sort of Germanic type approach of running science mm -hmm. say apart from people like Ken Murray um, and that created some problems and uh, but I was there for five years okay so uh, f after five years of Biogen you, you're on the move again and this was back to after five years of Biogen yes and I'll tell you there was a very good reason for that um, I mentioned that I worked with uh, Francois Jacob in Paris and I had a phone call from Francois Jacob and then from this, the under director of the Anti Pasteur saying that they had just built a, new, built a new building and it was going to be a biotechnology building and they'd like me to go there and start a biotechnology lab in that biotechnology building and since um, I was also fed up with traveling because I had to go to Boston regularly for meetings uh -huh. and I found that very tiresome. The constant back yeah. and forth, yeah. And, uh, and I guess I'd served my time there, you know, because the lab in Geneva at that time was really secondary to Boston. Everything, all the projects were going in, into Boston mm -hmm. and uh, into Cambridge, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's the way they wanted to do it. But the Geneva lab was not um, an important function any longer. And in fact, the year after I left, um, or two years after I left, GlaxoSmithKline took over the Geneva lab. You know, and then Biogen was straight all Biogen Cambridge. Biogen was all point? Cambridge. Right, okay. Um, so I didn't, uh, it, there wasn't any real remorse from my, my point of view. I, Biogen did a lot for me. Mm -hmm. I learned an enormous amount there. Uh, the people we hired to work there were just terrific and it was good to work with them. It was just amazing. And the whole business was exciting because I knew I had, um, a former student of mine was working at CETUS. I knew several people who were working at Genentech. And so the industry at this point is sort of building up yeah. around and you. And we were, you know, we would, we would talk about things. We wouldn't tell secrets, of course. Sure. Yes. But it was, um, I felt part of biotech at that time. But then when things, things really soured on me because of the, uh, problems in Geneva and Geneva was running out of money um, Cambridge was being run by uh, Bob Files and there was it was a real access at that time and Geneva was not favored mm -hmm. even though Geneva had done a lot of the fundamental work for Biogen it was not the same thing uh, so I didn't mind leaving hmm. how did you um, how did you end up at UBC how did Oh, I was getting worried about retirement in France, and uh, because in France at that time you had to retire at sixty, mm -hmm. for the answer you passed it up. 
and I thought that's not too far away and I didn't want to retire so I Mike Smith who was here he was an old friend of mine from Manchester and I called him and I said you know are, are there any do you know of any interesting jobs going in Canada because my sister lived in Canada here in Vancouver and so Mike said well um, in fact there's a headship going in at UBC they're looking for a head of microbiology so I uh, he said would you be interested I said well I'll have a look so I came here and my sister was living here and so nice. Dottie liked it and we didn't have any children with us we had a dog and um, so I said I'd take it and the deal the Dean of Science gave me a nice deal he said you still have to retire it's not 60 but it's 65 wow. but he said if you um, have funding and you're willing to teach you can continue for as long as you like oh that's great so I have a letter from him that I waved to the present dean from time to time saying, I can stay here forever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I know that um, Terrigen was spun out of UBC? Yeah, we started Terrigen. We started Terrigen in probably, well, I was lucky because um, the University of Singapore wanted to set up a, an arrangement with the Department of Microbiology. Yeah. So the University of British Columbia and the University of Singapore set up this joint arrangement to have a, a lab. And, we, and I said, we're going to work on soil. Mm -hmm. And there were about eight people there, four from Singapore and four local. And it wasn't a company or anything like that. So it was just a group working on this. But, and we were, we were the West East Center at that time. We weren't Terrigen. And uh, we realized, and I guess I realized that, you know, we should start a company. So we did, and we managed to raise money. Um, and we could have raised more money. And that was, sort of, that was your first time doing that sort of thing? Yeah. Getting, was that was VC funding or well, angel funding? It, well, it was from uh, venture capital, oh. things like that. The, um, in, when I was with Biogen, when we had funding drives, I had to go around oh, on you the did. show. With okay, the other so you people. were familiar. But but it was yeah, and that's a drag. But here, I, everything was done on site, and uh, it was the biggest mistake was not raising more. We could have raised more money, but um, one of the local venture capitalists was didn't want that. They wanted to have control. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to start the company, and uh, that was a great experience. Honestly, we started off at a a small lab, which is on the south side of campus, where we had uh, six people. We had one of the first sequencers on campus, uh -huh. and uh, we yeah, we were working very well. We were doing a lot. We were finding out a lot about bacteria and soil. Getting sequences and things like this, and then we decided to go public, and so we raised enough money to get going, and then we we then moved to um, a lab just across the road here, where they had begun to set up labs for companies, startup sure. companies. We did a lot of good work. We suffered from the fact that sequencing was more difficult than than it is now. If we had had good sequences, we could have, we would have been really able to do a lot. But what was the end game? It was bought. It was bought by Cubist. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And they could pick us up relatively inexpensively. Yeah. Uh, and what Cubist said at first that they would keep a lab in Vancouver, um, but then their board said they couldn't. So like, I think about eight people went from here to Boston. Yeah. But um, I didn't want to go. I'm happy here. Yeah, so that's, 
That's a good question. So you you are happy here. You said 22 years now at yeah. UBC. Um, you're not planning on ever returning to the UK. This is kind of is well. I will visit, but I'm I know, you're not going to move. I'm, I'm settled here. Yeah. yeah, and your wife is happy with that as well. And my wife is very happy here. Yeah. You know, I was the stuff that you mentioned earlier on about the war and having to move around. Do, do you think that having that sort of um, not to play armchair psychologist, but having that sort of moving around early in your childhood? You know, you moved around all over professionally. It was like no big deal for you. I think a lot of people might have, have balked at that idea. Yeah, I don't think it was ever a big deal for me. And when I cannot remember in terms of the war, I think everything was so matter of fact. We were told that we had to move because the Germans were going to bomb tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So we went, this kind of thing. And that just seemed, so it seemed normal for you yeah. as a child and normal for you as a professional just to move wherever, yeah. whatever happened, yeah. yeah. Hey, you've really seen some good, some good cities: Geneva, Paris, yeah. Boston. Oh, I it's I, I would do it again, honestly. I mean, it was. Um, I'd probably make some changes. But <laughs> do you have any but, any big regrets? Um, I think my biggest regret is that Terrigen didn't get going. You know that we didn't, we couldn't raise the money, and uh -huh. we couldn't. We were. You know, we started too soon in terms of uh, the power of sequencing. If we had started seven or eight years ago, I think it would have gone easily. So, with your letter from the it was from the dean, yeah, are you planning on teaching? I mean, you ever going to just retire, retire, or just going to teach for as long as you can? I don't want to. I mean, I prefer to. I, I have a lab. Uh -huh. um, we're doing the kinds of things that I would like to do. We're working on uh, drug discovery, we're working, looking for antibiotics, we're playing with signaling between microbes in nature, uh, with, we're looking at antibiotic resistance, which is what I've always done, and it's nice. But um, I, as long as I can keep a small lab, I don't mind. Now, whether I have the physical ability to keep a small lab, I don't know, but I'm you want to as long as I'd like. I want to. And I'd uh, like to die at the bench. <laughs> really? Way, right? And just maybe have a postdoc come in and find you. And yeah, go, that's, that's the way <laughs> yes, he wins. That's, that's right. perfect. Yeah. Um, listen, I really want to thank you for your time. Oh. I really enjoyed the talk. And uh, I guess that's well, it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Julian Davies for having us into his office. And thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. Question, how do I find more of these podcasts? Well, you can find us on Stitcher, you can find us on iTunes, and you can find us on the podcast homepage at Nature Biotechnology, including the full archives. So with that, we've reached the end of this First Rounders podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.